You can be seated. Amen. Gosh, thanks, y'all. Um, hi. That wasn't for me, was it? Um, I know it was for him. Uh, that's awesome. Could they be here every week? That'd be amazing. Um, I'm glad you're with us. The I really love that new song, Tim. Um, that. I love that. I love the line, I am who I say, who you say I am, because I think so often, this is something we're real passionate about as a church, we get tripped up because we start believing a lot of things about ourselves that maybe God never said, and there's that reorientation that we have to do around what he says is true about us, and one of the things I love to remind us about is the truest thing about you and I is this, you were created in the image of God, and you're deeply loved by God, and our lives go all over the place, and we have these crazy journeys and we all make mistakes, but nothing we will ever do will change that fact that you bear the image of God and you are deeply loved by Him. He couldn't love you anymore. He will never love you any less. That's who you are. And it's always a challenge to reorient ourselves around what He says about us. Um, We're going to be in a series over these next few weeks that we're launching today. I'm really excited about it. It's in the book of Exodus. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and find it and turn there. This is a a story about a journey from slavery to home. And Cindy found this image. We always have images that go with our sermon series. And she's like, can we use this? I'm like, I don't know what it means, but I love it. Let's do it. So uh, you can just ponder for the rest of the sermon how that ties in. I'll try to find a way here eventually. But um, let me set up where we're going to go in this journey of Exodus with a little story. About two years ago, my wife and I, we decided to sell our home. Um, if you've been through that, you know it's kind of a big deal to go through that whole process. We moved here in 2004. We had a four-year-old and we had a baby and we found a home and we both thought this is just perfect. This is the perfect home, the perfect home for us. We loved this home, and it was perfect for many years until at some point, Becky and I, we looked at each other, and we're just like, this is the worst house on the planet. (laughs) What happened? It used to be perfect for us, and now we just hate it. And it wasn't just our own fault and our own dissatisfaction. We had help coming to that conclusion. It was really these two people who convinced us of that. Um, That is, if you don't know, that's Chip and Joanna Gaines. They host a a show on HGTV called Fixer Upper. They take like a horrible home uh, and they fix it up and it's like the nicest home you'd ever want and you just want to live in that home. And what happened, they look nice. Like they, they, they are, they're nice, they're delightful people. But if you start watching this show, it's gonna cost you money. Um, <laughs> there's no way around it. And we started watching this stupid show and we started just like making a list of all the things that were wrong about our house. We're like, this is a horrible home and stuff started bothering us that never bothered us before. For instance, there was a point at which I looked around my house and I was just beside myself because there was no shiplap. I didn't even know what shiplap was until I started watching these two people. And now I'm like, I cannot live another minute in this shiplapless house. That's hard to say. Uh, but I felt it. If you don't know what... <laughs> If you don't know what shiplap is, it's like this horizontal wood stuff that goes on your walls, and I, it's all the rage. You gotta have it. I don't know, but I was, I was living in a home with no shiplap, like a refugee or something. 
And eventually what happens, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, our list of home projects was so long, we're like, well, we just have to move. We can't do all this sort of stuff. Let's just move. We'll start over. This is no longer home to me. So we moved, and thanks Chip and Joanna for that. We found a great realtor, Jessica Daniels. She was great. She was very patient. We looked at like 30 houses. Um, It was exhausting, but we finally found one that was everything we could ever want. This is a picture from just a few weeks ago in our backyard. I'm not going to give you the whole tour, but this is our home, and we like I drive to it every day, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love our home. It's just this refuge in this place of peace and rest. Only here's the problem. We didn't stop watching this stupid show. <laughs> we still watch Chip and Joanna. And do you know what's happened over the last two years? The perfect home that we found yet again, we've started making a list of things that need to change so that we could actually make it a home, the home that we've longed for. You know what I realized the other day? I was walking around my house. I'm like, this house doesn't have any shiplap either. How could I have bought two houses with zero shiplap like a fool? I, like Jesus is up in heaven shaking his head because we all know when Jesus' uh, kingdom comes on earth like it is in heaven, all the homes will have shiplap. And here I am, I'm a pastor, and I'm preventing the second coming of Jesus with my shiplapless house. Um, here's what I'm noticing about myself. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I noticed this. I think this is true of all of us as humans. We have this longing for home, right? We have this longing for a place. It's not just like the physical place, but it is this state of being like a home. It's something like we've felt, but we've never maybe found it. We've never been to it. This place of safety and security, this place of comfort and peace and love. And when we find a place that could be home to us, what always seems to happen is what happened to us. We bring Chip and Joanna along, and pretty soon we're just as dissatisfied as we were the last time. Pretty soon we look around and we say, well, this is no longer home to me either. Now, I'm using a metaphor here. It's not Chip and Joanna's fault, of course, and it's bigger than the house you live in. It's just that old truth that wherever you go, there you are. Um, And we kind of pack up all of our junk and all of our baggage, and we take it into every circumstance and every, every situation, and then we're like, why can't this place feel like home? You know, we're launching this series in Exodus. I, I, I like the title. We're calling it A Journey from Slavery to Home because on one level, that is literally what is happening in this book, that God's people, they were slaves. Their lives didn't belong to them. They were controlled by someone else, and God sees them, and he intervenes, and he delivers them from their slavery, and he leads them to this place called the Promised Land, which is like this home where they can thrive, and they can live in freedom, and so it's a literal journey from slavery to home, like an external journey, but it's also this internal journey for the people of God. And what they discover real quickly is that the slavery and the brokenness, it was not just external. It was not just related to their circumstances, but it was something inside of them that was broken and enslaved. And even though God brings them into this new circumstance, he still has to free them from the slavery that they carry around with them. And so it's a fascinating journey, and it occurs on two different levels throughout the book. There's the external level where God brings his people out of Egypt and into the home, the promised land. But there's also the internal level of this journey where God has to get Egypt out of his people so that they can find their home in him ultimately. One of my favorite quotes about the Bible is this, the Bible is not just true because it happened, it is true because it happens. 
And what that means is, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is we find ourselves in the pages of Scripture again and again. Those stories, it's always bigger than just the story itself, but it's about life. Jesus even suggested this in John 5. He, he was talking about Moses, who we presume wrote Exodus, and he says, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, I, I've thumbed through the entire book. You don't have to. Jesus is not mentioned. But on some level, that is the story. We are all in Egypt. We are slaves to sin and to brokenness. And Jesus comes and he sees us in our slavery and he claims us as his own and he gets us out of Egypt and that's a start. But then he has to get Egypt out of us. And the story of Exodus is our story. It's the story of all of us. It's Jesus in humanity and the way that he is leading us to one day find this home. I love how one author describes it, the home Jesus is leaving, leading us to. He says, it's a place where everyone wants to be. It feels familiar. It's the home we felt but never been to, a dwelling place, a storied place, a safe resting place where you can find a life filled with dignity, creativity, beauty, intimacy, and the joy of becoming fully human. That is home right? And over these next few weeks, as we look in the book of Exodus, we will find ourselves in that story. Sometimes we will find ourselves in the picture of the people of God, and we have to learn to follow God out of the slavery that we've managed to, to wind up in and into the home he's creating. Other times, we're going to find ourselves in the person of Moses, uh, who's kind of the hero of the story, and we'll learn that we've got to join God in helping him lead others out of slavery and into freedom. But wherever we find ourselves in the story, we will find this again and again, that we have somehow managed to take our slavery with us into every situation. That's why we struggle. That's why we struggle to ever feel at home. That's why we're always looking for a home. Um, I'm really excited to jump into this. I want to just start us out today in Exodus 1, so find that in your Bible. And I want to just start with the, like the setting for this story, and then we'll get into some other stuff next week. But I want us to think about this question, why do we all long for a home that we have not yet found? Exodus 1, verse 1. Here's the intro to the story. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers uh, and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So right at the beginning of the story, you realize we're like in the middle of a story here. Like this story is bigger than this. You hear all these characters that they're, they're introduced, Jacob, Joseph, his brothers. And the truth is really this is a story that begins in Genesis, in the book of Genesis. Let me give you just a little bit of background. It really begins on like the first page of your Bible. Um, in Genesis 1, we read about how God creates all this stuff, light and darkness, sky, ocean, dry land, and then he fills everything that he created with life, so stars and birds and fish and animals. And then there's like that pinnacle moment of his creation where he makes this man and this woman, and he puts them in this garden. It's like specially prepared just for them. It is their home in every sense of the word. And in the Hebrew language, it describes it, it says that there was shiplap everywhere. Just, <laughs> Every tree covered in shiplap. Um, and they had it all, right? They, but they tried to grab for more, 
and they, uh, when they grabbed for more, they lost it all. And the consequence of that is they had to leave their home. And as their descendants, all of their descendants, us included, that longing for home, we feel on a deep heart level. It's in our DNA to return to the home that we lost. But also in our DNA is this uh, decision that they made to reject God, to trust themselves, to go out on their own. And that's why we always wrestle with this. We never are able to find that home that we're looking for. Now, everything I just said there, that unfolds in like the first three chapters of the Bible, and it's, it's tragic. But in the middle of that tragic moment, there's this weird little sentence that just kind of seems out of place. God, he's about to kick Adam and Eve out of their home, and the human race is going to be searching for a home like for the rest of time, right? And there's this weird sentence in Genesis 3. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And it's so like weird and and, like we know they were naked and they needed clothes. So it's like just a practical thing to do. So I think I always skip over it, but we shouldn't because like this is right in the midst of the greatest tragedy the earth will ever know. And there is this moment of like tenderness and provision where God, he anticipates what they need. And he's like, well, I'll take care of that. And I think those are not just clothes, but it really is a promise from God to all humans. It was a promise that says, you don't know what you've done, but I do. And I will never abandon you. I will make a way for you. I will provide something for you. I am going to fix this. I will cover you. I will lead you back to this home that you just threw away. And that's a theme for God with people when they make mistakes. That's why it shouldn't surprise us. A few chapters later, uh, a lot of mistakes have been made. Horrible destruction and flood is coming as a consequence of those mistakes. And God selects this man, Noah, and his family. And he says, listen, I am going to provide for you. I'm going to rescue you. And I'm going to lead you to start a new home. A few chapters after that, God sees this man, Abram, and his wife, Sarah. And he says, I'm going to provide through the entire earth through one of your descendants. But here's what I want you to do to start off this relationship. I need you to leave this place that you're in and find a new home in this new land that I'm going to show you. And it's that man's descendants. It is now called Abraham. Uh, Abraham and Sarah's descendants were this family that we read about in Exodus. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, he was also called Israel. And they have 70 people in this family, and they're facing this devastating famine. And so once again, God says, let me provide for you. And he makes a way for them to relocate the whole family to this new land of Egypt and to find their home there through this weird circumstance with the youngest son. And so they find this home in Egypt, and we read in verse 7 that things are going really well for them. They're like thriving in this home. Now, you can read the book of Genesis for yourself, but that's kind of the summary of it. What really happens is it's people just like us who are given something by God, and then they kind of reject it, and they throw it away, and God says, I'm not done. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to make a way for you. I'm going to provide for you. And again and again, people are wrecking the home God's given, and God says, I'm going to provide. I'm going to make a way, and I'm going to bring you to this home that, we, that I, I will create. And once again, in Egypt, they're experiencing this home, and once again, Chip and Joanna show up and wreck it all. Um, They're going to be my metaphor for everything bad throughout the whole series. So (laughs) that's probably not fair. Um, Here's what happens to the people of God in Egypt. Uh, Verse 8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. 
Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So again, people of God look around and say, well, this is no longer home to me either. And the, the longing for home that they were created for is again frustrated. In this case, though, they're stuck. They're enslaved. Someone else is in control. And they're left just hoping that someone would act on their behalf. Now, that's the intro to, like, really the biggest story in the life of the people of God until Jesus shows up, the Exodus story. Uh, but it isn't just their story, it's our story. And what I want to challenge us to do today is just to begin this process of finding ourselves in this story. This Exodus journey from slavery to home is all of our stories. And I want to suggest that there's two ways that we need to see ourselves in this journey. The first is this, the journey from slavery to home for us is an internal one. It is an internal journey to leave behind our slavery and to find this home that God's created. What I mean by that is this. Most of us were not born in physical slavery by God's grace. We weren't born in Egypt, um, but we were born with Egypt in our hearts. It's in there somewhere. That slavery is in there. And God is always working to redeem us from that slavery that we carry around. Uh, it's, it's really, it's the same thing that Adam and Eve carried with them. It is just this preference that we have. It's like a switch that's always switched towards this propensity to trust ourselves instead of trusting God. And God says, you can trust me. I love you. I know it's best. And when you do, well, I feel like I'd rather trust myself. And it's just inside of us. And the sin that Adam and Eve did, it wasn't just that they ate the fruit, but it was this lie that they believed that, hey, I, I could do this thing, and then I could kind of be like God. I could be better than I am, and we've never gotten over that lie, and we put ourselves in the place of God all the time, and it doesn't matter how many times we mess it up, we just still, we, it's like we have that propensity, that switch is always flipped, that I should trust myself. We do this in all sorts of ways. I, let me give you one silly example. I'll do something shallow just to show you how deep this goes. Uh, there's a phone on all, or a game on all of our phones called Candy Crush. Do you like to play Candy Crush? Show of hands. Okay, uh, only a few brave souls. I, some of you are lying. Uh, candy Crush, it is a simple game. If you don't know what it is, there's like these colored candies. You slide them around, and when you get three in a row, they disappear. Uh, and it's like a puzzle game, and uh, you conquer levels and all that sort of stuff. Now, the way that my mind works, I like strategy, I like organizations, and I dis discovered a couple of years ago that when I am like stressed out, uh, if I play this game Candy Crush, it like gives me this illusion of like accomplishment and success. And somehow this stupid game has become like this little stress relieving thing that I just play it and I feel better about myself. And it's a little embarrassing to admit, but we're friends here. It's, it's stupid, I know. So there's three versions of the Candy Crush game. Um, over the last two years, I've conquered like 2,700 levels. Thank you, yeah. 
I have in my notes, I'm not proud of that, but really I am. <laughs> and I appreciate the applause. Know what my wife never applauds <laughs> for that particular skill. Um, anyway, of all the ways that you could cope with life, like Candy Crush is a pretty harmless crutch to have. And I like a Candy Crush, a crush addiction is not morally wrong. And I'm not saying I'm addicted. Like I could stop whenever I want. Um, I just don't want to right now. But anyway, it's... <laughs> As far as crutches go, and as far as coping with life, it's just like this little thing that I have. Now, here's why I bring it up. Isn't it interesting that for us, like just to cope with life, just the stress of living and being alive, we would rather turn to little stupid activities like that than turn to our relationship with God. And while there's sometimes nothing inherently wrong about those crutches that we hang on to in life, they are evidence of a greater slavery that is always at work within us, where our predisposition is to just trust ourselves and to turn to those things that we can control, even when it's a silly little game. And that is a form of slavery. And I know I'm using kind of a silly example here, but I know this, all of us could tell a story where that predisposition to trust ourselves had devastating consequences on our life. Some of us are caught in that story even in this moment. The work of Jesus is to redeem us from that sort of slavery, that internal slavery that we carry with us. He died on this cross to free us from that and to lead us to this home where we can finally be at rest and stop trusting ourselves and trust him and be at peace. And when we can return to that way of life that we lost in the garden. That's the Exodus journey he wants to take us on. It is a a journey, an internal journey from slavery to finding this home that we hope is out there, but none of us have ever totally found. That is our story because internally we are all on that journey. And I want to suggest a second way we need to see ourselves in the story. The second way we need to see ourselves in the story is this. The journey from slavery to home is also an external one. So it's internal, something that happens inside of us, but also is an external journey. Now, if I'd have uh, preached this a couple years ago, I don't know if I would have included this truth. Um, I was looking at that. I don't know if I would have included this external journey uh, of, uh, from slavery to home. I, I'd never actually met someone who was a slave two years ago. Um, but as some of you know, last year I got to travel with an organization called, appropriately enough, the Exodus Road. And they fight to free people who are actually slaves, people who are caught up in human trafficking. Um, And the stunning statistic that kind of sparked something for me was just this idea that there are more slaves right now than at any point in the history of the world. And certainly there are more slaves in the world right now than there were when Exodus was written. And as shocking as that is, man, it totally rocked me to walk into a brothel and meet someone who was caught up in human trafficking and living as a slave You know, there's something that happens. I think it's something of God that happens when slavery is not a metaphor for sin for us, but it's a face and a name. I mean, it works on both levels, but there's something about it being a face and a name that it just, it changes something. And as horrific as that reality is of human slavery, um, you know, I know you know this, but there's an even larger number of people who live in extreme poverty, or they live as refugees, they're caught in some sort of a system where they don't have a slave master necessarily, but they're in a system that controls and exploits them. 
And if we talk about just control and exploitation, we recognize that happens in every culture, in every community, among every people group, no matter their socioeconomic status. And the reality of the Exodus story that I think we can't just talk about the metaphor for us to benefit from. We have to see the God of Exodus. It is the reality of God that whenever he sees oppression, that he fights to set the oppressed free. He is the God of Exodus. That is his nature. You know, this is why we read when Jesus, God incarnate, he comes to earth and, and he's getting ready to start things off with his ministry. And he's like, hey, I want people to know who I am. We read what, the, what this says in Luke 4. It says, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found that place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he's about to tell you why he came. He says, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is filled in your hearing. Now, Jesus was not talking to people for whom this idea of setting the oppressed free was just a metaphor. He was talking to people for whom this idea of setting the oppressed free, it was their history and it was the world that they were living in. And I think he was talking about it on both levels, the internal and the external, that God rescues people in slavery, in real slavery. And when you see oppression on this earth and it bothers you, that is absolutely God in you. And I would say it is what Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord, the God of Exodus is upon you in that moment. You know, two years ago, I think if I would have preached this, I would have preached the whole thing as just this metaphor for sin. Because it is. I mean, it works on that level. Um, but something happens when you're looking in the eyes of a young girl who's caught in human trafficking. And I think in that moment, God says, hey, do you still think I care to set the oppressed free? I, for me, um, that moment, it, you kind of, I, I saw my dreams of shiplap for what they really were. I think he does care. I read this recently, and I honestly, I don't know who said it. If you know, tell me. Um, if it's someone horrible, I apologize. I think there's truth in this. It said, in America, we've mistaken our affluence for blessing instead of seeing it as the calling that it is. And, you know, what I think that means um, is this, is that either God has given us in our country enormous freedom and enormous wealth and enormous resources, but just because he likes us and he thinks that'd be cool for us to have it, or maybe he's given us enormous freedom and enormous wealth and enormous resources in our country because he's looking for a partner in his rescuing work on earth. Um, it, you know, it's probably a mixture of both. He does like us but he is the God of the Exodus and he is the God who rescues and he's looking 
for partners. And I want to suggest that for us, as we look over this next few weeks at this story, that we need to find ourselves in the story by finding ourselves participating in God's story of setting the oppressed free. We worship a God whose heart is about rescue. And he's looking for partners in his rescuing work. And so on one level, it's that internal story that we find ourselves in where God is redeeming us from the slavery that we carry around inside of us. But on the other level, it is that external level of just there are real slaves and there are people oppressed and caught up in it. And we worship the God of Exodus and we need to partner with him and he needs to lead us into that story. I'm really excited about this series. I'm excited about where we're going to be going with it. Um, I, let me just end with this today. This, this maybe is a good stopping place for us today. Becky and I, we lived in our home for about 12 years. And at some point we look around and we're like, oh, this is no longer home. What are we going to do? Um, that's a thought we have frequently. I don't know if you've thought it in those words, but it's something that we all feel. This is no longer home to me. We have this longing for this home that we think you know, it's just like in us that we felt, but we've maybe never found it. And sometimes it just comes to that breaking point of this is not my home. I'm not yet there. Maybe it's a behavior in your life that, man, that used to work for me, but it's starting to feel like slavery. Maybe it's a relationship that it just does not feel like the home that I long for or some circumstance. Maybe it's something you see in someone else, like I saw in that young woman's eyes in that brothel. She's looking and saying, this is not home. How could I ever be at home when this is happening? That moment can be painful. It can be uncomfortable. What we read today was the moment when God's people look around Egypt and say, wow, Egypt is no longer our home. You know what they didn't know? But what we know, we can read ahead in the story, um, is that painful, uncomfortable moment is the start of an epic journey where God works on our behalf to free us from that slavery and lead us home. And as hard as that moment can be to realize I am not yet home, it is a promise to us from God that I am going to lead you there. And if you feel that, however you feel that longing, it is the spirit of God in you and it is the promise that home exists and it can be found in him. Do you feel that today? Is there something in your life that is just, it feels like it is not yet home? It feels like it's slavery. Are you unsettled by the world? Listen, what you shouldn't do is just start putting shiplap up and covering it. What we should do is lean into this journey that God has for us. To say, God, I believe you see me I believe you've claimed me. I believe that you have something better for us, better for this earth. Our God is the redeeming, rescuing God of the Exodus, and he's calling us home. That's why I think it's so appropriate that we're ending this first part of the story with the table. Uh, you know the story of the table. The night before he was crucified, Jesus, he sat with his friends he gave them the bread and the cup. He said, this is my broken body, this is my blood. And then he called it something great. He said, it's a new covenant. What that means is it's a new promise. That it's like those clothes in the Garden of Eden when they were leaving it that God gave them. He said, this is a promise that God will provide for you. 
that God will do something. And of course, that stirred up all these emotions in his followers. And so uh, there's a second part to that conversation. We usually end it after he uh, gives them the the bread and the wine, but there's this second conversation where he says to them, he sees it in their eyes and he says to them, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. And I love how the message captures what he says. He says, you trusted God, don't you? Trust me, there is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, I would have told you. Or or would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I will come back and get you so you can live where I live. You know, that's the invitation of this table. We can leave behind the slavery that we've found, that he'll come get us, that he'll lead us to this new home. What do you see in your life right now that is slavery to you? Where do you feel that unsettled longing for the home that you've not yet found? That feeling is the Spirit of God on you, and it is a promise from Jesus that he sees your slavery, and he's coming to lead you home. Let me pray for you. Lord, uh, we long for something. We long for this home. We long for a place where we can be at rest, where we can be free from the things that enslave us, from the brokenness that surrounds us. And so today we choose to trust that that longing can be answered in you. We choose to trust that that longing is evidence of your spirit in us saying something to us. And instead of just patching over it and throwing something up, God, we lean into that longing and we choose to trust you.